So, you know, phase one was let's get these primitives working in a place where we can actually build stuff with them. Phase two was what can uniquely be built with it. And I think phase three looks a lot like what can we power in unique ways, but that maybe is not as native to crypto. And this is where, you know, maybe moving, and I'm stealing a term here from a fellow at USV called Nick Grossman, who talks about crypto native versus crypto enabled. What are mainstream apps that are not essentially crypto apps, as in you may not even know, um, but that are uniquely enabled by crypto and could not be built if there were no distributed rails behind it. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagme Ventures. On today's episode, we have Henry Stern, co-founder at Privy. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagme Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting builders, founders, and investors from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Henry at Privy. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm Tanner. This is the Wagme Ventures podcast, and I'm here today with Henry Stern, co-founder at Privy. Henry, what's up? How are you doing today? I am very well. How about yourself? I'm doing good, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I'm glad we can make it work. Me too. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So, okay. I definitely want to talk a lot about Privy, but I'd love to start maybe just talking about you a little bit. So maybe we can start. If you could just tell us a little bit about your journey, sort of leading up to your work now, you know, really like through the lens of the evolution of your crypto journey and how all that led to the genesis of Privy. Maybe that could be a good place we can start. Sounds great. So, so maybe the, the, the thing that, that I think is, is kind of core to my crypto journey was the fact that I was fairly torn for a while between uh, startups and academia, both of which I saw as very exciting places to do great work. My first job out of college was, was starting a, a company. And then when that company was shut down, I ended up going to grad school and studying computer uh, security. And so that is kind of how I ended up in crypto in the first place. I was finishing up my master's, was going to join a PhD program. And a friend of mine said, listen, instead of writing papers for five years, which is a, a noble pursuit, but uh, wh- wh- why don't you uh, do research that you can actually productize and build products at the cutting edge? Uh, join the company I've started. It's called Protocol Labs, and we build large-scale distributed systems. And at the time, I knew about IPFS. I, I probably didn't know all that much about crypto, but I thought the work was very interesting. So I ended up joining Protocol Labs. We had just started basically breaking ground on on, on Filecoin as a, as a development endeavor after the token sale. And I spent the next three years, more or less, working on on, on Filecoin and specifically on the consensus algorithms underlying this. And my viewpoint here was uh, super academic forward. It was a lot of reading research papers. It was a lot of trying to understand um, what is the sort of paths that we have in distributed consensus to enable decentralized networks to agree on the state of a machine, specifically a storage network in our case, and really moving from you know the highly theoretical, let's look at all the options, to the pretty pragmatic, okay, now we have a construction. How do we parametrize it? Like how often do we want blocks to be produced? How likely do we want it to be for a single party to be able to influence entropy in the network through certain actions? And so it it was a lot of fun. And I think I I learned a lot through it. I left Protocol Labs around the time we launched uh, Filecoin. And I think I had loved the work I'd done and I'd clearly been incepted into uh, why I believe crypto mattered. And the version for me was really about user consent on the web. It was the sort of client server interaction model for the web means that. Uh, as a user, you're kind of beholden to the companies that give you access to the internet. 
for what your experience is going to be like. And so in exchange for a cool experience, you're trading off a lot of data and a lot of your rights in order to use these services. And you know, one of the cool things about distributed systems is it, it requires kind of consent every step of the way to make state up, updates. And that is you know, ultimately what a transaction is. A transaction is a way for a user to say, I want to do this and, and, and to actually be brought into this decision each and every time. So I love the space, but I was pretty fed up with, with two things. One is how poor the UX was. I felt it was really hard to not really be able to explain, for example, to my like family or friends not in crypto what it is I worked on because they didn't understand. And I didn't really have a great product that I could point them to saying like, this is what I'm working on um, in that you know, I was working on a protocol. And then the second thing was the privacy implications of putting data on chain felt very scary to me. I think my take was in order for crypto to become uh, sort of a mainstream user-facing application beyond finance, crypto companies and crypto products, or I guess crypto-enabled products, are going to have to start taking on more user data because I think most users do not think of themselves as a cryptographic address or as a wallet. They think of themselves as you know maybe an email address or other parts of that. And I guess our take was uh, products should build for people, not just for wallets. The wallet is a tool that I can use to consent to things as part of it. But ultimately, to improve the UX, we're going to have to start using more uh, basically PII. And the space right now is not at all set up to handle user data securely. And so I, I left basically Protocol Labs wanting to work on data privacy, looked a lot at, at various ways to do so, both in Web 2 and Web 3, and ultimately decided that the place I could have the, the sort of biggest impact on that space was in Web 3. And that led to my meeting Austin, my co-founder, and ultimately starting Privy. Very cool. Okay, awesome. So now that we're here at kind of inception of Privy, maybe you could explain just a little bit of like what Privy does and what you seek to enable with what you guys are building over there. Yeah, so today... Privy is a single library to onboard all of your users to Web3 applications. Specifically, what that means, we're a developer tool. We have an SDK, and the SDK enables you to sort of take on a user regardless of where they're coming from. So if they're coming in with an email, with a Twitter account, with a wallet, we give you a single library that sort of enables the user to come in and then come out the other side with uh, a way to transact with on-chain systems and a way for you to understand uh, who they are and how they're using your product uh, without having to, you know, put in a bunch of if-else statements for, uh, you know, is this user coming in with an email? Do they have a wallet? Is it a MetaMask or a, a Zerion wallet? And so on. We abstract a lot of that away and we basically give you a really simple uh, authentication and embedded wallet kit for you to onboard your users. Very cool. Okay, awesome. So Privy has already worked with a bunch of major names in Web3. I especially really liked what you guys did with Paradigm and your announcement tweet of your Series A. I thought that was really cool. But I'm curious, you know, what's one or two things you've learned that you had to get right for Privy's product to succeed? And maybe talk us through some of the thinking behind some of those insights. That's a great question. <laughs> I have two that come to mind that are from very different ends. So by that, I mean, one is a very sort of top-down, maybe startup lesson, and one is a very bottoms-up product lesson. The, the startup lesson is, I suspect, about incrementalism and ideology. And by that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly ideological person. A lot of my reason for being here is thinking about data privacy, thinking about user self-custody and interoperability. And I think we, we spend a lot of time working on very opinionated versions of the product that ignored a lot of what our customers, developers, 
needed in order to build the apps that they wanted to craft. And so I think there was a lot of, let's make sure that everything we build has a customer champion. Ultimately, that ended up being the sort of core heuristic that has saved us time and again from being too excited about shiny objects uh, from a technical perspective. So for example, I remember a conversation uh, about a year ago where we were starting to think a lot about what is our you know, strategy and game plan for integrating in an account abstraction powered world because we think that's where the space is going. And you know, the conversation basically was, what, what is our account uh, abstraction plan? And, and one of my team uh, mates said something that I loved, which is let's not talk about account abstraction. Let's talk about the capabilities that unlocks. Are we talking about, you know, gas sponsorship? Are we talking about transaction batching? Are we talking about session keys? Let's get very concrete with who are the customers that need what parts of this. And then we can start breaking down how we get there as opposed to saying, you know, how are we going to build with this stack? It's how are we going to uh, provide these utilities? So I think that, that that's probably the first one is everything we build basically has a customer champion. Every integration or every product feature, we have a customer who wants to use it the second it comes out. And we basically build it with that customer before making it more widely available to uh, the rest of our customer base. That's, that's fascinating. I, I love that idea that the opinionated software piece actually expressing this ideology that I think a lot of people came into crypto with, right? Like actually owning that in product decisions is really interesting. And then also just having a very tangible customer in mind or user in mind for each each feature, I think is really a great perspective. So yeah, I mean, obviously, the two are sometimes in tension with one another, right? Because the customer may not care about our ideology. So the stance that we have to take is making sure that we have, the, we're making the appropriate long term bets to kind of build uh, for the world that we want to live in on the web. But at the same time, we're, we're making the right sort of short term bets so that we are able to build something that's that's you know deeply useful to our customers and maybe that's the, the second lesson as well by the way is is it just working really closely with great customers i think we have had such luck in working with companies that we really look up to and admire who are teaching us a ton about ux about their customer base about what's acceptable or not to their users but i look at you know companies like like zora or frentech or blackbird or courtyard or opensea like all of these folks uh, every time we talk to them, we, we just know a lot more about our product because they know their users really, really well, and they know UX really, really well. So that's that's been super compelling. The, the second big lesson for me, I think, is maybe that we, we thought a lot initially, we're building a developer tool. And so a lot of our initial insight was uh, wallets and embedded wallet systems are not one size fits all. And so we should build a system that establishes a good floor, meaning we are responsible for having good defaults and for having the floor of the experience be a secure experience that we're proud of and stand by for every single deployment that we're a part of. But then the embedded wallet experience should be upgradable, should be customizable by the developer based on what they want to do. The reality is, you know, to some extent, the wallet is a core of your account today. And for some developers, that means I want a Metro card. I want something I can pull out of my pocket and swipe through real quick multiple times a day. And for some people, that means I want a bank vault. I want something that is uh, massive and has the same shape every single time that I might use infrequently, but that stores massive assets. And the question for us was, man, apps are going to need very different shapes on top of this. And we're going to need to enable very different features at the app level, you know, so that apps can turn on, for example, MFA for every transactions so that wallets can be used without the second factor so that they can turn on password recovery so that they can choose whether or not to customize UIs. I think our take was, you know, apps like users are not one size fits all. And the way in which we empower those products should be different for each product. I think the lesson we learned is is the core idea was good, but we kind of 
got it wrong in terms of where we applied that that idea. Because in fact, it's not just that apps are different one-to-one, it's that users are different one-to-one. And the same app has different users at different parts of their life uh, cycle. And so actually a lot of these things that initially, these are features, we had scoped at an app level. Does the app want to enable you know, MFA or not? Ends up being scoped at the user level where it's, does a user X need to enable MFA or not? And so it actually makes the product quite a bit more complex in that now we have to manage basically for a given app multiple types of users with different settings. And it also means that instead of something being on or off across a user base, it is on or off on a per user basis. And maybe it's mandatory and maybe it's optional, but that ended up fitting what we were trying to do in terms of enabling very progressive experiences in Web3, where the product comes to shape your usage of it or or takes the shape of your usage of it. It ended up fitting that paradigm a lot more. And I think that was a a hard uh, learned lesson. Super interesting. Hey, everybody, quick thing here. We're excited to announce Wagme Advisory, your home for all things fundraising, hiring, and partnerships. This is all about supercharging your project with the Wagme Network, consisting of over 20,000 executives, investors, and builders in crypto, all ready to come alongside your project to help it succeed. Get in touch at team at wagmeventures.io to learn more and figure out if Wagme Advisory is the right fit for your project. Now, let's get back to the show. I mean, there's so much we could zoom in on there. I think I want to keep rolling to the next question, which is actually, you know, it's a recurring one that comes up on this podcast a lot where, you know, building with what you guys have built, I have to imagine it was not a 100% linear process, right? There's always early challenges in the life of the startup and also in the life of, of building something new. And so I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm just always curious, like what, maybe one or two kind of early challenges and how your team sort of thought about solving for those. would be really curious what that looked like in the privy context. Yeah. So, I mean, the first one maybe is, is this question of, you know, build it and they will come or build with real concrete customers in mind uh, that I've talked about. I think the second one really is, you know, the reason why uh, Asta and I got so excited about building data privacy tooling, which is, which is still very much a lot of the ways we think about the product in this space is, is because of, of, you know, the two features I would argue of, 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 I'll use the word web three, maybe on-chain systems is self-custody and interoperability. The user is the true owner of the assets they have. No one can take it away from them, even if they are not on the app. And the assets that they have can be used across apps without needing developers to explicitly coordinate to make that happen. We were like, those are two very powerful features. And they basically lead de facto to a user-centric world because the app can't be the center of that universe. The user needs to be. And as we were thinking through this, we basically... We're trying to build an interoperable system for user data, a way for users to have, a, in a sense, a data vault where they could carry their data from app to app. And, uh, and the short answer is, uh, very painfully, that just was not meeting a core enough uh, developer need. I think it is meeting a need that will arise in the market. I think it was too early. And I think what we saw in building it was that the main way in which people were using our product, this data store, was to store basically user identifiers, logins, email addresses, phone numbers, social accounts, or other wallet addresses that they wanted so that they could build sort of richer user profiles and power better experiences that way. And so we're like, man, clearly everyone's kind of trying to use our system to do this other thing. Let's make sure that that works really well instead. Let's build what we're building towards, which is to say uh, an interoperable system where users can access the same accounts across different apps, even if these apps look very different than, than, than the way you would have with a traditional consumer wallet. And we'll get back to, to, to that original sort of effort. So that's, that's how we've been thinking about it. But obviously, the process of, of, of having your product just 
not be important enough to customers is, is a super painful one. Yeah, super interesting. Okay. So you kind of mentioned this sort of banner or high-level theme, unifying theme of data privacy tooling. And I'm, I'm curious, just as you think about future trajectory for Privy, where do you sort of predict or expect or hope that Privy might go in terms of products? It's already doing such cool work, but you know, how do you foresee things evolving or progressing over time, obviously in tandem with these great customers and you know, satisfying their needs now and in the future? How do you predict that evolving? I'll mention I'll mention two. The first very clear one is this idea that we have of of global uh, embedded wallets. So we have this this embedded wallet system, these wallets that are uh, self-custodial but live uh, closer to the app context so that they can provide sort of a contextual experience for the user in app. It's not a separate product that you have to download and then that sort of pops up as needed. It is uh, baked into the app. So that when you, for example, are gaming and you click a button in a maybe store in game, uh, the buyer to the sell is sort of instantaneous in there. Um, so we're trying to bridge basically some of the UX gap without giving up the parts that make Web3 special. Um, we started with a very explicit decision, which is the goal is interoperability, but the threat model is much simpler on an app specific basis. And we can do a lot more to solve for the current constraint, which is we felt UX in an app specific way. And so we went there. So basically, this, this, this global embedded wallets piece is a major part of our work. And I think bringing interoperability back into the types of experiences that we have is, is a major part of it. And then I think beyond that, looking at what are the other parts of uh, the stack that makes it really difficult for a developer to get a delightful experience off the ground in crypto. And so this isn't necessarily stuff we'll build ourselves. A lot of it is going to come through partnerships and integrations. But you know we see a lot of uh, conversion sort of dropping at the place in which you're trying to on-ramp assets into your account and things like that. And so I think spending a lot of time basically looking at the user lifecycle and understanding what are the areas in which there's still a lot of gaps in so far as developer tooling is concerned that make it that the only people willing to build in crypto are crypto experts rather than developers who want to build unique products that are uniquely enabled by crypto. That's a, that's a lot of what motivates us and where we're going. Love it. Okay. Super interesting. So I'd love to take a step back here and maybe just with the time we have left, talk a little bit about sort of the blockchain or Web3 space more broadly. And I, I think my first question here might be, I think really just around, because you, you've been in the space for quite some time. I'm, I'm always curious for folks that have been around, how has crypto changed since you've been in the space? What jumps out at you is really in terms of where it's going as distinct from where it's been, that's worth kind of highlighting or calling out, especially for those who might be newer to the ecosystem. I think my answer is pretty deeply modeled by my time in crypto, maybe more so than by the space itself. I don't know how good I am as a sort of representative for what uh, time in the space looks like. But for me, at least, um, crypto started extremely academic. And a a lot of my time initially was spent uh, looking at core cryptography, looking at distributed systems and dealing with really what was early productionization efforts of research papers. And I remember at the time, my thinking was, man, if this space leads to nothing, at least we'll have funded some pretty amazing research that'll be useful the internet over. And so that that's an important thing to work on. I think over time, what to me felt a lot like basically a, a research space, a, a part of, a, of, of, of where you could look to in, in how to build distributed systems and computer science and an in, internet has evolved into a real industry. Uh, and so I think that's been, that's been a, an evolution where there's a lot you know, you know, now the research is only a part of it. And in fact, the majority of what crypto is, is industrial applications 
of this research. So today it takes a certain shape and a lot of it is very crypto native. And I look here, you know, at things like digital collectibles, NFTs. Um, I look at things like, you know, DeFi and so on. And that was probably the second phase of evolution. I think the third phase of evolution that we're in now that I'm seeing is basically, so, you know, phase one was, let's get these primitives working in a place where we can actually build stuff with them. Phase two was, what can uniquely be built with it? And I think phase three looks a lot like, what can we power in unique ways? But that maybe is not as native to crypto. And this is where, you know, maybe moving, and I'm stealing a term here from a fellow at USV called Nick Grossman, who talks about crypto native versus crypto enabled. What are mainstream apps that are not essentially crypto apps, as in you may not even know, but that are uniquely enabled by crypto and could not be built if there were no distributed rails behind it. And so I look here at stuff like real world assets. I look here at a lot of what we're seeing in gaming. I look here at various sort of loyalty programs or, you know, I forget what the, the term is. I think it's Deepin, which I forget what it stands for, but things like distributed networks of uh, user insights that can be aggregated. And so here I'm, I'm thinking of companies like Demo that does a car analytics platform that's really uniquely enabled by crypto. I'm thinking of uh, things like Helium. And that is sort of the next move that I'm very, very excited about, which is we have now gotten to a place where uh, I suspect crypto native products are going to keep doing amazing and are going to keep being pushed. But there is a new realm in which we can build, which is leveraging these distributed rails for building experiences that can cater to crowds who are coming first and foremost because they're interested in the product itself rather than maybe in the crypto behind it. And I think both are really important for what it's worth. So actually, we built very intentionally across both sides of the spectrum. We think that uh, crypto native products is what pushes the space forward, is how we learn about what's possible in this new paradigm. But also that, that catering to mainstream users is an exceedingly important part of realizing crypto's value in the world. Love it. I think it's a terrific perspective. So, okay, a couple last questions here for you, Henry. I think I'm curious, from your vantage point as a founder, what advice might you give to other crypto founders if you were to kind of play, you know, elder statesman here for a moment, especially any new founders that may be coming into the space here in the last six months to a year, and they're kind of getting their their sea legs under them. What advice would you want to impart to them? Or maybe even what advice would you want to impart to, to your earlier self as you made the kind of the, the jump from researcher to founder? I think I have two. The first bit is really pick your customer. Uh, I think one of the one of or, or, or pick your audience. It doesn't need to be a customer. It doesn't need to be SaaS, but understand who it is you're building for. Like have a uh, persona that really fits, and basically use it to decide whose input to take and whose input to ignore. I think one of the things that makes building exceedingly hard, especially in this space where people are thankfully so passionate, is that you have so many opinions to pick from in terms of understanding how you need to change your product, how do you need to iterate. If you were listening to opinions from people who are not aligned between each other, you're going to end up sort of building an amorphous blob that isn't quite right for anybody. And so I think that's something that we did wrong early on a little bit was we would basically uh, take passion or interest as the signal that we needed to listen to someone, as opposed to looking at, you know, maybe incentive or characteristics of what they were trying to get out of the products that we were building. But I think listening to basically uh, two sets of customers who don't want the same things from your product is a surefire way of building a product that neither of them really likes. So that'd be, that'd be the first piece of advice. And then I think for me, the second is setting setting sort of internal deadlines. And I think it's something that we actually do really well as a company, which is I think it's important to pick your head up 
and kind of understand where's this industry going, where's the world going, what do we believe in that is still true, and what do we believe in that is no longer true. Um, and it's good to be a little bit cognizant of these things, especially in an industry that moves so fast, both on, on terms of like the technical underpinnings, the legislation, and so on and so forth. But I think it could be pretty bad if you are basically questioning everything all the time. And so making sure that you have moments in which I know that basically I'm going to do this for three months on this experiment, this product, I'm going to do this on six months for this core assumption I'm trying to prove or disprove. And this is the data which I get to pick my head back up and question it. And in the interim, it's heads down and it's go, go, go. That's felt like a very helpful, you know, sort of pencils up, pencils down type back and forth that has enabled us, I think, to be appropriately thoughtful about what we're building, not too thoughtful. Love it. Great advice. Okay. Henry, a couple last questions here for you. What is your team working on right now? And what's the best way for people to follow along on the Privy journey? We are working very, very hard on this global embedded wallets idea that I was that I was talking about. It's, it's, it's a very uh, special rollout for us. It's a lot of reason why we're in this space. It's also, frankly, a, a super important thing to get right because the security and privacy implications of this feature set are huge. So we're being very diligent and frankly, we're taking our time, but we're working on this uh, a a lot these days. The other thing is cross-chain support um, and continuing to basically build out for more and more on-chain systems as we go. The uh, Today, Privy is compatible basically with all EVM chains. If you're interested in following along, privy.io is a great place to go and privy underscore IO on Twitter or privy on Farcaster Network are all uh, good places to check things out. Perfect. Henry, thank you so much. Super interesting perspectives and really grateful for your time today. So have a great rest of your week here and take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and maybe give us a good five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts so you can get all the latest conversations with the most interesting crypto founders, investors, and builders from across the world. Thanks so much. Have a good one.